All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll make a start. Um, I'm Simon Jackman, Professor of Political Science and Chief Executive Officer of the United States Study Centre here at the University of Sydney. Welcome to the university and to the launch of a new report by two of the centre's senior non-resident fellows, Dr. Charles Adele and Dr. John Lee. Uh, of course, we acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we're meeting tonight, the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. It's just great to see so many friends of the centre out for what's a big night for us, uh, launch of a major report by, by, by two of our uh, best and brightest, as it were. The Trump administration often gets a bad press. That won't be a surprise. It's been slow to fill many appointments. It's been described as chaotic and beset by internal divisions. But with a speed that surprised many observers, particularly here in Australia, the Trump administration produced two far-reaching official statements of policy and on strategic thinking, the national defence strategy and the national security <coughs> strategy. These canonical statements announced officially a sea change in American thinking, announcing a return to great power rivalry and strategic competition with China and with Russia. In addition, the Trump administration has announced a raft of additional measures that give voice to its new view of the world, spanning everything from the tariffs that we read so much about on Chinese imports, restrictions on Chinese telco providers, through to a raft of other measures that aren't getting anywhere nearly as much media attention, but upon which we at the US Study Center are intensely focused on. The speed, the breadth, and the depth of this new American approach to China in particular continues to surprise many Australians and many Americans for that matter. And so there's a colossal appetite for the work of the US Study Center in helping to make sense of what America is doing and thinking with respect to its foreign policy, its implications for Australia in particular. As I exhort the staff of the US Study Centre, this is our moment to help Australians equip themselves with a new vocabulary, a new strategic vocabulary fit for purpose. We're not quite in a Cold War, but it looks a lot like one. How is this time different? How is this one closer to home? How does this one impact the alliance? and a lot of our commercial interests for that matter. So, and so this new report by John and Charlie is exactly in that vein, helping Australians develop a vocabulary, a way of thinking that's fit for the times in which we live. And if it's an exciting time to run a US study center, consider how exciting it is to be Australian ambassador to the United States. Um, it's been one of the great pleasures of this role and for everybody that works at the US study center, from you know, quite regularly, several times a year indeed, to, have, uh, to be working alongside uh, Australia's diplomatic team uh, in the embassy in Washington and occasionally hosting uh, the Australian ambassador back here. And we've got to see the work of Ambassador Hockey and team up close uh, in initiatives that span public diplomatic efforts by the Australian government through to closed door sessions with the leading uh, thinkers uh, in the strategic affairs community in the United States and, and here in Australia. Managing Australia's relationships with the US government and other powerful actors in the United States is a big, busy job, but especially now. Um, and so for that reason, I'm especially pleased uh, to be able to introduce uh, Senator Arthur Sinodinas. Uh, Arthur's a long-term friend of the Senate, uh, indeed. I think it 
we should point out that while he was chief of staff uh, for, for a period of um, nine years to, to Prime Minister John Howard, it was during that period that the United States Study Centre was instituted uh, by the Howard government. And, and so in, in no small way, uh, Senator Cena Dinas was president at the creation of the US Study Centre, uh, understands our mission, and I hope understands the, the intimate role and the, and the close role that it's been an honour for those at the centre uh, to provide. Uh, to, to, to help uh, the ambassador of the day. And that's a role, Arthur, we look forward to continuing. We hope that this is the first of many engagements as you head towards that new role. Uh, I'd, I'd invite you to make a few opening remarks tonight as we get underway. Thanks, Arthur. Well, uh, thanks very much, Simon. It's great to be with you. Uh, and. Uh, you're right, you're, let me start with your last point about the centre itself. It's really gratifying to come here after all these years and see the centre is not only surviving but thriving. There have been the odd issue over the years about the funding of the centre, uh, but under you know, um, governments of both persuasions, we've been able to sort that out. And uh, the Gillard government came to the rescue, I think it was 2011, and there's been more funding under us in recent years. And, and I think... The vision for the centre when it was set up was not to be a barracker or just a mindless promoter of all things Australian and American. It was about providing a rigorous evidence-based approach to the relationship and to helping us understand each other. Because even though we speak the same language, there are so many ways in which we come at things with different perspectives, even though we share so many historical and cultural and other ties. But for us, it's a bedrock relationship. And it's important for us every so often to keep reminding ourselves and our fellow Australians about why the relationship is important in this changing world. Uh, why it's so integral to our national interest that we maintain that relationship and find ways to broaden and deepen that relationship. That's not to exclude other relationships. Um, you can get caught up in this idea of measuring one relationship against another. There are different dimensions to the relationships we have. But what is important, particularly today, as the world around us changes, is to understand what are the forces at work and how can we bring to bear on you know, the world in which we live today those fundamental values and beliefs that underpin what we do and what we stand for. We saw those values and beliefs tested with things like 9-11. And you saw the way in which Americans and Australians came together in that context. I wasn't in uh, Washington at the time, I was at the Canberra end on that particular trip, but John Howard was in Washington. It made a big impact on him. To be in America at the time when the homeland, the US homeland, had been attacked in this way, big impact on the US psyche and a big impact on his psyche. And you know, everything that happened on that trip, including invoking the ANZUS Alliance, reminded everybody you know, that there are real consequences to this friendship, to this commitment to each other and that we are prepared to stand up and be counted on those consequences. But when we look at China and what will happen with China, China, people keep talking about a challenge, it's a marvellous opportunity. We're dealing with what has been the greatest poverty reduction initiative in human history. And the important thing is to keep that engagement going and finding ways to broaden that engagement. And yes, there are challenges, in inverted commas, along the way, but the reality is that there is so much good we can do by identifying the areas of common interest, 
seeking to understand where we differ from each other and why we differ from each other, and then how we handle those differences. It's not, you know, it's a bit like what happens to you in life. Bad things can happen to you. It's about how you handle them. But here we're talking about things which are potentially great opportunities. Now, the paper today is not a paper that's been commissioned by the government or whatever. It's an independent paper. And as such, can take very much an independent view of what's going on. And that's what's important. We need the Australian public to have access to the best minds available who can analyse these issues in a way that's accessible to people. And one of the challenges we face with foreign policy debate in this country is making sure that it's not just a debate among established political players or a particular political class, but it's actually a debate to which there is a much greater accessibility in the community. That's what's important. Because there are big issues at stake and we need to be able to take our fellow Australians with us as we make decisions which have big impacts on our future. The other point I will make, um, I'm not really wanting to talk about any future role I may be going into because that's all sort of for the future and it will be sorted out in due course, except to say that it's exciting to think of a country which so dominates science and technology around the world and the great opportunities that America brings to the table and therefore the capacity we have as a nation to feed off that and the things that we can bring to that relationship and the way in which that can help to mould the transformation that's going on in our own industry and our own society. It's very important for us to have that, that sort of framework around our thinking. What can we learn from each other? It's, it's like life. You know, if you get into a job and you say to yourself, I know everything about this job now, and that's all fine. Well, I'm sorry, you don't. You've stopped learning. Learning is the thing that's important. So ladies and gentlemen, tonight is a night to learn from two eminent scholars one of whom I've had the good fortune to know through his work in government, and he was a great contributor in government and probably didn't stay as long as some of us wished he had. Um, and, of course, to, to meet Charles as well. And the important thing is they're going to stir our minds. They're going to give us things to think about. There's a Q&A afterwards, which is always the best bit because you get to ask them some really difficult questions. So I'm really looking forward to that. But thank you for your welcome to me here tonight. Thank you, you, Simon, for the leadership you provide to the centre. Um, I love watching you on TV. You get in there and you, and you offer an opinion and you back it up. Good on you. Thank you. And that's very important. Uh, and uh, I'm also a bit of a devotee, I must say, of Planet America. I tend to watch that a bit. And, you know, people joke a bit, but that, actually it's not a bad program. It's actually, quite, it's actually quite factual. Um, so, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's enough about my personal predilections. Um, and some of my colleagues will probably attack me for praising an ABC program. But anyway, that's, that's another story for another day. Uh, onward with tonight, and thank you very much. We'll have to tell Chaz he's got a fan. That's great. That's great. Well done. Um, and, and look, that's a great way to tee up uh, the conversation we're, we're about to have uh, from the authors of the report, who I'll, I'll briefly introduce now. Uh, um, first of all, uh, 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 Charles Adele. Uh, Charles uh, was an undergraduate classics major at Yale, uh, stayed on in New Haven to get a, uh, a PhD in history, and then has had one of those remarkable um, careers that academics sometimes have in the United States, um, going on to teach 
at the Naval uh, uh, War College in Providence, Rhode Island, but then a career in government working uh, in the uh, this very senior level in the Department of State under Secretary Kerry. Uh, and, and now he's with us. We're, and we're, we're so grateful to have uh, Charlie out here in Australia for, for a couple of years, uh, perhaps a, another year or so before um, uh, his, his spouse's career takes him perhaps elsewhere, as, as, as often happens uh, with the Department of State. Um, but but, um, but it's that you don't often see that in Australian academia. You see it a little more frequently in American academia, that bouncing between the academy and getting real grit under the fingernails from teaching senior, senior leaders who will have great burdens on their shoulders. But that bringing the lessons of history to, to, to under, into the minds of, of, of policymakers and, and warfighters. Um, just a remarkable career that Charlie's had, and he's recently authored a book that draws on that uh, sensibility, um, um, uh, The Lessons of Tragedy, um, which we launched here at the university only a couple of months ago. Uh, his co-author uh, is John Lee, Dr. John Lee, um, um, uh, uh, who uh, has a, a PhD in national relations from Oxford. Um, um, and, and John, of course, as, as Arthur alluded to, uh, worked in the office of the Honourable Julie Bishop uh, when she was Foreign Minister of Australia. And, and at a remarkable time as this evolution in strategic uh, thinking in, in the region, uh, both, and I've talked about that evolution in the United States, but, but here in Australia was, was, was happening. And, and now John, um, when John was leaving government, I, I, I pounced on the opportunity to, to get him in the stable at the US Studies Centre. And, and to lead them a little later on in conversation is Ellie Wainwright, um, who also has a PhD uh, in international relations from, from Oxford University. And, and, and if I may, note that very carefully. Uh, three PhDs, uh, one from Yale and two from Oxford, are your, your interlocutor service tonight. Um, that's a difference we have here at the US Studies Centre. <laughs> uh, thanks. Uh, uh, but, but I'm quite seriously, as you said, Arthur, our best and our brightest applying their minds to this great change in strategic circumstances. This is what the work of the centre is about tonight and this is what we're treating you to. So with no further ado, Ellie, John, Charlie, could you please come up and take it from here? Thank you. And thank you, Arthur. Thank you, Ellie. insights for Australia. 
So John and I are bold enough, or foolish enough, to do something a little bit different. Uh, because what we thought we wanted to do, particularly at such a critical time, was to scope the situation, but actually offer recommendations for both Canberra and for Washington, D.C. And because we do speak the same language, but in slightly different accents, we thought that we might take the opportunity to do so. So what we'd like to do tonight is lay out uh, the challenges that China poses to the alliance, because that's at the core of what we're talking about. Look at efforts uh, that are underway uh, in the US and here in Australia. Look for overlap between the two, but be a little bit more candid than the normal conversation is about disagreements and divergences. And then we'll step out smartly and offer plenty of grist for the demille, for the debate, uh, for pushback, for elaboration about where we think both Australia and the United States should be headed. So uh, let me start, though, with some basics. Right? Um, overwhelmingly, the United States and American firms are the number one investor in Australia in terms of employment, exports, capital expenditures, uh, R&D. Reciprocally, the same goes for Australia. The amount of investment that Australian firms put into the United States is larger than they put into China, into Latin America, and the Middle East. We think about our security alliance, which dates back to 1951. And of course, we fought side by side for the past 100 years. We think about the compatibility of our societies. And as two democratic nations, it is incumbent to underscore how important our values. Freedom of the press. Freedom of religious expression, tolerance, religious liberty. Uh, are, I mean really democracy, as core principles to understand what prompts and provides the atmosphere for both our own prosperity and our security. So those are the basics. Uh, but if we're going to be honest, we've got some challenges ahead of us. Uh, first of all, we've got some challenges because we're such old and such good allies that we have an ability to sometimes drift into nostalgia or sentimentality or inertia. Now, that's not where the policy conversations are, but there's a trap that we might fall into that. Now, in normal times, inertia, stasis, sentimentality are fine. If we think domestically in our own countries, if we really think internationally in the region, these are anything but normal times. And if we want to push the conversation a little bit further, and if we want to be honest about it, it's important to be clear that as much as we love each other, Canberra and Washington are actually kind of frustrated with each other, but for different reasons. Right? Washington would like Australia to engage more consistently in the region, to be less shy about calling out aggressive Chinese actions in the region, uh, to be more willing to promote its own values. Canberra would probably like the United States to be a little bit more consistent these days in both articulating to its closest ally what its priorities are, what its strategy is, what resources it's going to put out at the problem, and frankly, to stop taking counterproductive actions when it takes swipe 
had its own allies. So failure to understand these differences is dangerous because it leads us into papering over them and it will lead us to a lowest common denominator approach. And if we think about the scale and the scope of the challenge, this is not a time for lowest common denominator approach, particularly as great power competition has revived. When I say great power competition, there's lots of code words that float out there. In this region, we're talking about China. And what we're really saying is that the geopolitics have changed in a way that China is trying to create and Asia that is a sphere of influence for it. And it's doing this in a number of different ways. Uh, through coercive activities that are meant to intimidate other states, through inducements uh, and bribes, and comes in, and those come in lots of different forms, and even through creating alternative institutions that are meant to lock in advantages for Beijing, but to leave the United States out in the cold. Now, on the course of end of things, you can generally see this, and you can think about the South China Sea or other places, where the modus operandi is to create a fait accompli. And the message to smaller states in the region is why would you be so foolish to resist what is inevitable? Because if you resist, you'll be silenced, you'll be shunned, there'll be diplomatic freezes, coal won't flow you up to our ports, and maybe there will be further punishments, dot, dot, dot. But you have to understand that these coercive activities are only one part of it, because there is a lot of seduction, and not all seduction is bad, of course. Uh, there is offers to national governments, to sub-state actors, to institutions, and to individuals to work with the Chinese government, and to CCP-affiliated organizations. Now, we are not saying that this outreach, this economic engagement should be shunned. That's foolish and that's impractical. But it's important and it's incumbent to realize that it's a double-edged sword. Because what can be offered can simultaneously be weaponized. We're at a university. The flow of students to universities has been a great boon to Australia. The threat of turning it off is a threat. And so all I would say is, when we begin to approach this from a strategic perspective, we tend to think about what Australia can do, what America can do, uh, what is the right balance on burden sharing. But what we need to begin to do as we reframe this conversation is think about what we can do together without isolating or boxing China out of the region. That is an impractical and a foolish strategy, and one that we're not likely to pursue. And we can begin to see in this new strategic environment how our governments are reacting. Let me briefly lay out how the US government is, although I think, Simon, you've already alluded to it. Uh, the formal documents of the US government have told us that we are in a new era of strategic competition. Uh, the formal documentation of the Trump administration has said that China is the chief uh, competitor, certainly in the regionally, and its aim is to push the United States, to ease the United States out of this region. Uh, that's formal documentation. Uh, the other week, at Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, the acting Secretary of Defense was a little more blunt. He said our priority is China, China, and China. And you can begin to see these efforts 
because it's a lot of rhetoric, but you can begin to see some efforts stepping out behind them. And I think the most important takeaway and point is, this is Trump, but this is not only Trump. And this has broad bipartisan buy-in in America, and it exists beyond Washington, D.C. It's in the American business community, it's in the American labor community, it's occasionally in our tech community, but that's like every third Tuesday of the month, and it's likely to endure. And so the Australian-American alliance needs to evolve with that understanding in mind. Thank you, Charles. First of all, thank you, Senator, for your time. Those are your very, very kind words. Um, thank you all for your time, for giving up your uh, Thursday evening. <laughs> and Charles, thank you for the joint report. It's, joint reports are very fraught things. Uh, many friendships have been broken by the writing of joint reports. But I can honestly say that I genuinely enjoyed uh, and learned from writing uh, this report. So I'm, uh, it's, it's something I'm very proud to talk about. I delivered uh, my first briefing to the Pentagon when I was in the think tank world, like I am now, back in uh, 2011. Now, the first time I'd been at the Pentagon, I didn't know any American defence officials whatsoever. I walked into that huge, enormous building. Um, and from the very first minute of my briefing, I was quite shocked that because I held an Australian passport and because I knew people that they knew, they essentially treated me as one of your own. We launched straight into it, there was no small talk. Um, it was as if I were briefing my defence officials uh, in the Russell offices in Canberra. Now, I raise this because the alliance as it stands is very well set up for defence and intelligence cooperation. The alliance, as we know, was forged uh, during the uh, period of the Cold War. Defence and intelligence cooperation is what Australia and the United States do extremely well. So this applies to improving uh, capabilities, protecting critical infrastructure, and safeguarding intelligence. Australia is already working with the United States on issues such as electronic warfare, hypersonics, energy weapons, and quantum applications. It is no coincidence that there is hardly any daylight between the Australians and the Americans on an issue like Huawei building uh, the next 5G network. Both countries do not want Chinese-centric institutions. Uh, they do not want Chinese norms to prevail in the region and the world. Uh, they do not want to see de facto subservient Chinese states or Chinese vassal states, as some people call them. And both countries will come up with policies to uh, coordinate uh, in countering these developments. Now, of course, if uh, both our countries agreed on everything and this was the end of the picture, there would be no need for us to write this report. Uh, but as Charles mentioned, we, there are differences. And a question that struck me as, as I sat down to, to write this paper uh, was that if Australia and China, Australia and the United States both agree on what kind of region they want and what they don't want to see from China, why are there nevertheless significant disagreements between our two countries? And I think the first uh, factor comes down to geography 
and the different roles performed by both countries. Now, the US as a superpower is a maker and defender of the order and system. Australia is a taker of that system, and we adapt the best way we can to whatever that system is. Now, Australia has been one of, if not the most forward-leaning allies of the United States in the Indo-Pacific. At the same time, we are hesitant to get too far out uh, in front of the United States in areas that do not involve direct coercion or interference. Uh, second, the United States has the capacity as a superpower to compel other states, to even coerce other states, or deter other states from doing something through threats. Uh, Australia largely does not, and we tend to exhaust possibilities uh, to persuade them uh, to take a different course of action uh, before we even think about any kind of coercive action. Third, as a superpower, uh, the United States is much more willing to contemplate sudden and profound shifts in policies towards other great powers, Dick Nixon going to China. Australia is different. Australia prefers to do things incrementally, as smaller powers tend to do. Australia needs to gauge the long-term commitment of the United States before we truly commit to something uh, which will have drastic consequences. And we need more explicit uh, security and other guarantees from the United States before we can commit uh, to more dramatic actions. Now, there are differences, and it's probably most marked between our countries on the economic front, where the Trump administration engages, as you know, in an economic offensive against the Chinese, and the Australians uh, have not uh, come on board on this economic offensive. Now, for a start, um, the truth be told, we actually uh, benefit in many respects from the lack of economic liberalisation in China. That is because the lack of uh, economic liberal reform in China uh, actually encourages excessive, even irrational capital investment in the Chinese political economy. And Australia, given what we export, as you know, uh, we are a very direct and big beneficiary of that Chinese political economy. Uh, additionally, the nature of our economic relationship with China, even though China is our largest trading partner, if you consider what we trade, it's commodities, agricultural products, or it's tourism and uh, education when it comes to services. With the former, we sell largely through impersonal marketplaces. With the latter, the Chinese are coming to our country. The point I'm making is that Australia has largely avoided the worst aspects of the Chinese political economy. We do not have, relatively speaking, a lot of firms in China. Uh, we are not as intertwined in the supply chains in China. Uh, in a sense, the opaqueness of the Chinese system that you've heard about doesn't really affect Australia to the same degree as many other countries in uh, Asia and, and the United States. Now, with respect to the American economic offensive against uh, China, the reality is that Australia has very minimal information on what sort of deal the president wants. As Ch Charles alluded to, um, that is part of the tactical genius of Donald Trump. But the problem for allies is that some shifts means that we do not have adequate information 
uh, as to where things are likely or intended to land up uh, with respect to this economic action. This pretty much means that it's next to impossible for Australia to calculate the risk and the benefits of more dramatic forward-leaning action on China uh, when it comes to economic action. Now, smaller countries like us, we like institutions because institutions protect smaller countries, even flawed institutions. So, for example, Australia recognises the problems with the World Trade Organisation, and they're real. They're not made up by the White House. They are real uh, issues that go to the heart of the sustainability of the global economic system. But our default position is to preserve the integrity and relevance of the WTO uh, until we know what an alternative institution looks like. Now, in contrast, the Trump administration's frustrations with the WTO and other global regimes uh, has led it to uh, downgrade the importance of these institutions, including the World Trade Organization, and instead attempt a bilateral reordering of the economic relationship with China. That is something great powers can attempt to do, that is not something that smaller powers like us uh, can uh, conceive. Now finally, as a superpower, and Charles, I'm sorry to say this, superpowers have grown accustomed to criticism because they can. Uh, Australia is far more sensitive to particularly regional uh, mindsets and attitudes to our policies and we prefer to persuade and gain a consensus before we take uh, forward-leaning action, even though the United States remains our closest ally. The result is that the United States is prepared to move ahead unilaterally, while Australia uh, will try to bring a lot of others um, before we actually uh, in initiate such action. And Charles, I'll hand to you. Sure, so we thought we'd begin to roll out to what we see as the right way to step forward. And recognizing that there's some profound differences, not only in interests, but perspectives. But that cannot lead us into simply saying that we just have to keep doing what we're doing. Because the situation, the external situation, has changed so profoundly that the alliance has to evolve along with that. In fact, we have to reframe, we would say, what the alliance is talking not about what can you do, what can we do, but how do we address the region where we have so many common interests together? Where can we cooperate further? Where, when we're not going and not likely to cooperate further, can we make sure that we're not working at cross-purposes to each other? And make sure that our efforts individually are aligned as best as they possibly can. Uh, so we wanted to give you a quick glimpse of some different areas uh, where we thought there were uh, initiatives where both Australia and the United States could undertake actions where they could be better allies to each other. Uh, I'm also seeing what you did, which was very sneaky. Uh, he said, as a superpower, you've become accustomed to getting criticized. So all that is to say is when we get to Q&A, uh, all the criticism, I guess, should be going my <laughs> way, not John's way. But first, let's give you something to criticize. Uh, so first, there needs to be more public discussion, more government-led public discussion about multiple challenges, not only the opportunities, the multiple challenges that China poses to this region and to the interests that we hold. 
Right now, there is a gap between almost every policymaker who is read in in Washington and in Canberra and most of both of our publics. Without public education, not hyperventilation, sober assessment of what our situation is, that gap is unlikely to narrow. And any initiatives are unlikely to be supported and sustained. So in the United States, um, there is an emerging consensus that China is a challenge on multiple fronts, but it is less consensus as to which fronts matter more than others, how are we going to sustain efforts over the long time, and what amount of resources are the American people being asked to commit to this. That can only come from the top. In Australia, there is also a gap about the challenge that is posed, about the challenge to Australian values. Without more engagement, without more debate, my favorite Australian word, without more contestability, we're unlikely to actually get there. Otherwise, we'll just be people in Canberra and Washington making plans that have no chance of having public support because people don't understand why their governments are necessarily taking the actions that they're taking. Uh, second point, and we're going to make ourselves as unpopular as possible. We both need to spend more money. Let me repeat that. We both need to spend more money. That's true domestically and from a foreign policy perspective. If we're thinking about how Australian and American society can remain competitive in the 21st century with new technologies emerging, with our citizens having to compete with more citizens globally, our governments have to invest more domestically in education, in research and development, in infrastructure, in innovation. If you don't see that government-led investment, both of our country's citizens will be ill-equipped to face the challenges that are right before them in the 21st century. That is also true, though, on the foreign policy front. Both governments have to spend more and more consistently, and not only for things, as Simon likes to say, they're painted battleship gray. We have to be more consistent with our aid, with our development projects, with our development, and with encouraging our private sectors to go around the region. And frankly, on the defense side, the conversation is framed incorrectly. The conversation is framed about what is the appropriate amount of Australian spending to check the box on allied burden sharing. That is not the correct question. The question is, how much do we have to spend given the new circumstances that we're facing collectively? That's the starting point for the real discussion. Uh, finally, or at least before I hand it over to you, because I'll do the easy ones, you can do the hard ones. Our security and trade architecture in this region needs to evolve beyond what it is. Right? The last couple of years have seen a proliferation, an explosion of bilateral relationships, trilateral relationships, the odd quad that appears every now and then. But none of that really answers the question, and I should say the implicit question. Uh, does network approach to security, bilateral A plus trilateral B plus quadrilateral C, equal deterrence? And thus far, the answer is no. 
And so the question has to become, what configurations within the region and outside of the region have to be beefed up and do we have to step on the gas much more quickly than we have thus far? And the same goes true for the economic realm. TPP, now the CPTPP, don't ask me what it actually means, is the gold standard here. Uh, and I can say as a US citizen who no longer works for my government, thank God for Japan and Australia and their leadership on this. It is the gold standard for setting standards that set rules for everyone to know what is transparent, what is fair, and where do we want to bring the rest of the region up to, and which is non-exclusive for China to join if they agree to play by the rules. That's where we have to go on those. John, what else? So I will wrap it up with uh, maybe two or three uh, final suggestions. Uh, remember, we're in a business of spreading risk and spreading benefits. That is what the United States has to do for allies. They have to spread the risk uh, between allies for what are very forward-leading actions um, to meet what you call the China challenge. Uh, this means that strategic and tactically important important decisions by the American administration has to be coordinated with allies. It sounds like a banal thing to say, but allies cannot make those risk calculations and risk will not be spread unless that occurs, and currently uh, that is not being done to the extent that it needs to be. Now, smaller countries need institutions, as I mentioned, and therefore a, a country like Australia needs to know the institutional outcome of any offensive taken by United States. As I mentioned, it is in economics that the disagreement is most obvious. Australia, Australia needs to know what the institutional uh, outcome that the Trump administration wants before we can even contemplate uh, any kinds of economic pressure, or negative economic pressure uh, uh, joined on against China. So is it, is it reform WTO that we're trying to compel China to agree to? Is it um, the emergence of uh, a multilateral treaty outside the WTO system, for example, the intellectual property that we're trying to get to with China? The point I'm making is that we need an institutional outcome. Australia cannot, uh, cannot enter into any kind of forward-leaning action if all it involves is perpetual tension between the United States and China. Now, second, a basic risk management approach is to diversify. Um, and we know that China uses uh, economic stress and coercion uh, for non-economic reasons. I also know that when you talk to the business community and you say you need to diversify, they look at you like you're some kind of economic Neanderthal. Now, I'm well aware that you cannot force private firms to uh, do things that are commercially irrational or things that will not be accepted by the shareholders or by the stakeholders. But that is not what uh, we're suggesting. Uh, our argument is this. Uh, geopolitics uh, does not operate independently of geoeconomics. And geoeconomics does not operate independently of geopolitics. The scale of China's illegitimate economic practices, which are getting worse, uh, has global strategic and economic consequences. Now, while the United States is the most overt and uh, pushy about these issues, 
and all major economies are seeking to reframe the terms of the engagement with China in various ways. So in the United States, the conversation is about what economic decoupling or supply chain coupling will look like. In Australia, it should be about diversification. Now this is not, and I'm speaking now to the business people in the room, this is not as radical uh, or as small or, or as one-track uh, a conversation as it may sound. Uh, businesses diversify to reduce risk all the time. Uh, they diversify where their what capital comes from, where their human capital comes from, what markets they target, uh, where their supply chain is located, what products they get from certain suppliers, who their consumers are, and so on. The problem is that businesses only uh, view diversification as required for purely economic and commercial reasons. They do not view diversification as required for geopolitical ones. But that, I would submit to uh, a private firm, is to exist in an artificial reality. It is the responsibility, it is good due diligence for private firms to consider the consequences of uh, predatory, coercive and punitive actions China occasionally threatens or takes uh, for non-commercial reasons. That should be part of a firm's formal risk calculation uh, uh, decision. From that point of view, uh, both governments, the United States government and the Australian government, should be open, and I know this is occurring, to uh, having that conversation with uh, private firms and captains of industry. Now third, uh, Australia has local knowledge and standing. It's part of our geography, but it's also part of the fact, as I mentioned, that we are a smaller power that requires, uh, uh, favours a consensus-based decision-making approach in a region. Now one of the virtues of allowing more Australian uh, input is that we're a better place to sell it regionally. Finally, and this may sound like an obvious this point, uh, it's important to disagree openly between the United States and Australia and disagree constructively, but behind closed doors at the highest level. I've had the uh, privilege of attending one OSMIN um, meeting, and I can say this, that um, when disagreements are raised, we very quickly move to areas of agreement, largely because there are so many areas of agreement. Uh, but we do not tend to focus on those areas of disagreement. We don't tend to spend time asking why we disagree and therefore how we work through them. Uh, that needs to change uh, between uh, Australia and the United States. So should Australia do a phone up in the South China Sea? Why, why not? Uh, should we work within or outside WTO institutions to uh, get a better result? Those sorts of discussions need to take place between the two countries. Uh, finally, uh, it seems needless to say, but if we do not um, manage these disagreements and come to some kind of uh, cooperation and um, resolution of them, remember that China's primary strategy in a, in, in a region is to split and weaken American alliances. It's a smart strategy. Without these alliances, America as a distant power cannot exercise the same influence uh, but for these alliances. Um, the American-Australian alliance, in my mind, is one of the two most important alliances in the region, along with the Japanese-American uh, uh, alliance. 
And so when we wrote this paper, we wrote this paper uh, with an end not just to improve the alliance, but with recognition that ANSYS uh, is a critical uh, foundation for, I think, the kind of uh, system and institutions that we want to see uh, in the region. Thank you, John, and thank you, Charles, for a terrific set of comments. Um, Your report sets the US-Australia alliance squarely against the backdrop of a deteriorating Indo-Pacific security environment and, in particular, heightening US-China competition. So I wanted to ask you two initial questions, I suppose. Um, can you give us some historical context for America's engagement in the Indo-Pacific, its, its regional strategy, and then kind of map that forward, irrespective of whether the Trump administration wins in 2020? Do you believe that US engagement in the Pacific will continue. And secondly, you've just mentioned, Charles, the um, fact that China is working to ease the US out of the Western Pacific and that um, the acting Secretary of Defense mentioned China, China, China is the focus. So that's sort of an articulation of China's strategic objective and, and the United States' focus. What is the United States' strategic objective in the region at the moment? Is it the maintenance of strategic primacy? Is it something less? Uh, I'll take both of those and I'll pretend not to be a historian, which I am, otherwise you guys are here for the long haul. Uh, America's objectives in the region uh, might change rhetorically from moment to moment, tweet to tweet. <laughs> They're consistent. They're consistent and they've been consistent for over 200 years. America's approach to Asia has been very consistent. Let me sketch it for you because I only think it has two elements. <coughs> Asia is really important. It is the driver of economic growth. It is a place that Americans have always been obsessed with for a number of different reasons. And it's also a destination from which threats have appeared. So America's strategic objectives, your second question, have always been, one, to make sure that there is access into the region for American goods, ideas, and commerce. And second, to make sure that there is not one power that dominates this region. Because historically, consistently, be that with the Europeans in the 18th century, be that with the Japanese in the early 20th century, be that with the Soviets in the later parts of the 20th century, when you have one power that has the potential to dominate the region, this is when it begins to look a little bit more offensively oriented at America. So I actually think that the Indo-Pacific strategy, it, its new nomenclature, it's the same old song. And I think that the idea that America is likely to pack up and go home is inconsistent with 220 plus years of American history. Kelly, can I just uh, jump into the last part of your question? Does America want preeminence? Now, I know there's a lot of discussion, uh, debate out there saying that uh, one does not need American preeminence to achieve what we want to achieve. I think we've got to look at the math in a region. China, if you take out the United States, China spends around two-thirds of all military spending in East Asia. It spends more than half of all military spending across the Indo-Pacific if you exclude the United States. The point I'm trying to make is there is no feasible balance without the United States. Now, then the question is why American preeminence? Why can't there be a, a, a stable uh, balance? between the United States and, and China. 
Now, look at, it, look at it from the point of view of small regional states in the region. What is their number one goal over the last 100 years? It is to prevent the emergence of an Asian hegemon. First it was Japan, and potentially now it's China. They, are, they may not like America, but they are more comfortable with America because America is not a, a, a geographically based region. America needs the acquiescence of powers in the region to remain to remain present in a region. That means that there is a structural reason why the Americans have to provide public goods uh, for the Indo-Pacific. Uh, in contrast, if China becomes the preeminent power, China is just here. China doesn't need the acquiescence of the region. So I do think there are strong uh, structural reasons uh, for American preeminence, and I guess then the question becomes whether that can be maintained with the help of allies and partners. I have other questions, but in the interest of time, I'm going to open it up and I might come back a bit afterwards and ask my questions. So please, um, if you do want to ask a question, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have. And may I ask you also, in the interest of time, to ask a rather brief question as opposed to make a rather long statement. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Skinner, uh, retired, uh, former military person with one child born in California and three long periods living in the US, which I enjoy immensely. Um, I'd like to uh, suggest that uh, this paper is just the tip of the iceberg and ask our eminent authors if they would agree that it could be greatly extended to a joint white paper between the two countries. And the reason why you might want to do that is China quite clearly is not just about establishing eminence in the region. As far as they're concerned, the region goes from the Arctic, where they're already operating, to the Antarctic, where they'll soon outnumber the Australian scientists in the Australian Antarctic Territory and everywhere in between. So it wouldn't be better if we stopped trying to maintain the status quo and started looking at what is really happening in the world. Um, yes, but would you read it if it were double the length? Uh, so uh, let me just say that this is an attempt to prompt a discussion about how we get beyond the status quo. I'm in full agreement with your point. Uh, I would say, too, that when John and I were discussing paper and how we wanted to lead, we had a back and forth about how specific we wanted to be in policy recommendations. And our decision, wise or dumb, was to shy away from specific policy recommendations, but rather to open up different areas, themes, and channels for the people who are actually working on the inside to charge through. Uh, the second thing I would say, because I do think that you're right, that this opens up and tees up some other things, that I actually think what's so exciting about this moment, yes, we're a moment of great flux, where the security environment is darkening, and that is troubling, but it's also a moment that calls for creativity. And so because of the closeness of our ties, I think Australia and the United States have an opportunity to do something very special, to lead on what an alliance-based approach needs to look like. And in fact, I would say we've gone back and forth on this a little bit. This is a paper obviously specific for the United States and Australia. But there's a fair amount in here that if Australia and the US get right, 
should lay the groundwork for what the rest of the allies and partners and like-minded states should also be doing together. Um, this is Boso from the Australian Financial Review. Uh, thank you very much for your talk. Um, so when I look at the global footprint of the United States, you see a whole bunch of different entanglements. And I think it's fair to say Secretary Kerry was just as prone to getting caught up in the Middle East as members of this current administration. So when Charles, you talk about consistency, it feels a little bit like asking us to be full-time lovers to a power that sometimes views us as part-time lovers. And uh, so I wonder what should the US do to give assurance that its priorities really are in the Asia-Pacific? And perhaps for you, John, what should Australia do in the meantime? And if I could just be permitted to ask a second question. Um, Senator Sinodinas, if I could ask a question of you. Um, <laughs> you can't. Sorry, I'm taking the mic back. I'm just here to preside over the event. Is that true? Can I just put it on the record and, 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 get, and ask it to the Senator? Which is, since you brought up um, the importance of learning, and you also brought up the Iraq War, I wanted to ask you what you took away during your time as Chief of Staff during that war was, and how that will inform your work in Washington. So I'm going to preempt that question because he's not here to take questions. Sure. And you can bum rush him afterwards. Uh, if you disagree with me, Senator, you can shut me up. You go right ahead. Sorry, but I will take your first question. Uh, so let's be very clear. On the military strategic intelligence front, Australia and the United States operate seamlessly the further we are away from this region. The game has changed. And so I would point to the fact that the United States is slowly but surely, or maybe very rapidly, reorienting itself. This didn't happen with Trump. I was in the audience as a faculty member at the Naval War College when the Chief of Naval Operations announced that we are going to shift 60% of our surface fleet to the Asia Pacific going forward. But you are right, and I think John talked about this a little bit that there is a difference because America is not an Asian power, comma, solely. America is a global power. And so it can never put 100% of its assets here. It can never put 90% of its assets here. So the question becomes, what is the right balance as America reorients here, and what do the regional powers who sit out here need to do more. And I refer you back to my previous point, that the conversation is framed incorrectly. It's what is appropriate burden share. The correct strategic question is, what do we need to retain a balance of power in increasingly contested Asia? There is something we can learn from the Chinese, and that is, Chinese uh, do not underestimate the United States. The United States um, system, its institutions, its it's various arms of government, it can be slow to move, it's loud, it's chaotic, it's two steps forward, two steps back. But when that system clicks into place, by the very same reason, it's very hard to shift back. And as Charles mentioned, if you go to the United States now, it is China, China, China. It may not, there still is an agreement on what to do about China, 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 but it is China. Your question of what Australia can do, if you look at the enduring uh, advantage and foundations that the United States has created for itself and for the region. It is based on building 
institutions. Uh, institutions matter, one, for their superpower because it draws them in and there is a cost to abandoning institutions. And it's good for small powers, as I mentioned, because it will spread risk and it will spread benefits. What Australia can do is work with the United States to come up with a preferred institutional outcome. Now, if you look at the United States' notion of free and open Indo-Pacific, if you look at the principles of the free and open Indo-Pacific, you would think, why would anyone go for it? It's essentially a rules-based order that protects the rights of smaller states. What the United States hasn't yet told the region, uh, because it's still deciding, is what that uh, institutional reform for a free and open Indo-Pacific looks like. TPP was actually a significant part of it, which is why it's a shame that it's off the table for the moment. But the point, the broader point, is that Australia and smaller countries, and countries like Japan, uh, can do much more to get the United States to a place that is comfortable for uh, uh, countries in the region. We just have time for one. Yeah. Yes, Thank you. Um, Genevieve Nielsen. I'm former uh, State Department and Commerce now here just myself. You mentioned in your report uh, a reference that Beijing donates to political campaigns, and I was just curious if you could kind of expand upon um, funding for both U.S. and uh, Canberra um, political leadership there, and do you see more political will, or any political will really, in Australia um, to avoid getting donations uh, from the Chinese government for their political parties, especially given the foreign interference laws? And well, on, on donations, I mean, now it's, um, you know, foreign entities can't give donations to political parties. Now, there's still an issue where uh, Australian citizens from various countries, for example China, can give donations to political parties. But I don't think don donations is really just one small part of it because you've got to say if, if you were the United Front in China and you've invested quite a bit of money in the Australian political system, you've got to be pretty disappointed. <laughs> it hasn't really delivered what you wanted. And the point I'm coming to is that if you have that broader conversation, if you have stakeholder, citizen, um, organisational buy-in into the sorts of things that we should be worried about, which, which I think has occurred uh, in Australia in the last two or three years, that makes your country more resilient. Um, so donations, yes, by all means, um, foreign donations, I think we should be careful of. But, you know, having shut down that avenue, uh, it's actually building... Uh, institutions and attitudes in the country uh, that, that really give you that national uh, resilience that you need. Yeah, I'd just like to comment um, on, I, I don't know, like three of the previous questions to make a final point that I want to make. Um, John, you had said that uh, China uh, does itself harm when it underestimates the United States. We do ourselves harm when we underestimate China. And when we don't take seriously what their leaders say. Now, this has a lot of dimensions to it, including, you know, we're very shy, both in the United States and Australia, in talking about the ideological dimensions of this. The Chinese are not shy about talking about this. They call it an ideological struggle. And I would say, frankly, the prompt on this report, making sure that this is not a lowest common denominator, seeing where else we can go, is 
Uh, look, in military speak, although I don't mean this solely in the military area, you talk about prepping the battle space. Xi Jinping has made multiple speeches in key, significant, historically important locations in China over the last two weeks that China needs to buckle down for another long march. And the question is, if this is the challenge that we're up against, what are we doing to prepare our own societies similar, similarly to take on the scale of this challenge? Do we have time? We don't have any more time, I'm afraid, for any more questions. Um, thank you so much to Charlie and to John for an absolutely terrific set of comments. Congratulations on the report. And I believe that our US Study Centre Chair, Mark Bailey, is going to offer a set of concluding remarks. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Ellie. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Mark Bailey, the chair of the, the US Study Centre. And on behalf of the Study Centre, I'd very much like to thank you all for coming uh, uh, and your attendance here at the uh, event this evening. Uh, I'd also like to sincerely thank our uh, speakers and participants and panellists this evening, Charlie, uh, John, Ellie and, and, and Simon, our CEO. Um, and in particular, and echoing uh, previous comments, I'd like to acknowledge the presence and participation of Senator Sinodinas and congratulate him on his uh, nomination as the next Australian Ambassador to the United States. When I first heard of the news of uh, Senator's nomination to the role, uh, my instant reaction was you could not have got a better person for that role, to fill that role. Uh, the Senator's experience over 30 years as a senior advisor to Prime Ministers, as a member of Parliament and Cabinet level Minister, provides him with an unparalleled depth of experience and expertise to occupy what is, without doubt, Australia's most senior and consequential diplomatic posting. I think the Senator is actually the personification of what is meant by the term continuity of government. Uh, also, and not unimportantly, as Simon has uh, already said from our perspective, the Senator was part of the initial group of people who uh, identified the need, but also uh, the implementation and establishment of the Centre back in 2006. We wish him much success in the role and look forward to supporting him in that role, as the Senate has done with uh, previous ambassadors such as uh, Ambassadors Thorley, Richardson, Beasley and Hockey. One of those former ambassadors, Dennis Richardson, and also former director of the Centre, uh, has used the phrase, the Australian-US relationship cannot be mired in nostalgia, that we must always be forward-looking in order to continually refresh and re reinvigorate that relationship. Tonight's discussion and the report it launched, I think, is a very tangible, in a very tangible way does that very thing. I believe that most people would agree that after a prolonged period of peace and prosperity for Australia, we are suddenly seeing many grey clouds, perhaps even storm clouds, gathering in the short and medium terms, both in the realms of defence and security and trade and investment. The release of this report is therefore very timely and topical. It provides areas of focus that may mitigate the impact of those looming storm clouds and hopefully provide a pathway uh, to clear a more settled weather in both a geopolitical and economic sense over the longer term. Some may, and actually have, contested that the continuation of the close US-Australian relationship is not in Australia's national interest. I don't believe the facts support this contention. Why? Well, as, as uh, has been already alluded to, in, in 2017, the, the Senate produced a report entitled Indispensable Partners focused on the trade and investment uh, relationship between the two countries. Maybe somewhat against the commonly perceived wisdom, 
It found that the US was Australia's largest destination of foreign investment and that Australia's largest source of foreign investment was the US. The two-way investment trade totaling more than $1.4 trillion. With more than $800 billion of investment into Australia, Australian industry and jobs from the United States. I like to summarise this by saying that a large part of the reason that Australia is able to trade with other countries is because of the investment capital provided by the US, which has built the infrastructure required by our export industries. Together with these investment flows, the trade agreements and the security treaties with the United, the, the security treaties with the United States significantly underwrite Australia's, Australia's, and importantly Australians, peace and prosperity. Finally, just some background on the US Studies Centre at the, at the University of Sydney. The centre was established by the American Australian Association in joint venture with the University of Sydney to provide Australians with a balanced view of the United States and an opportunity to learn and gain insight this, into what is undoubtedly our most important strategic partner. It also exists to strengthen the Australian relationship, US-Australian relationship. It has been very fortunate to enjoy, as the Senator said, both the continued financial support of both Commonwealth and New South Wales state governments on both sides of the, of the political divide uh, since its formation, as well as support of many companies. Its mission has allowed the Centre during its 12-year history to educate over 7,500 students, author more than 1,000 journal articles, research reports, opinion pieces and books, and convene in excess of 1,000 events with tens of thousands of attendees. As a consequence, I look forward to the Centre playing a continuing role at the intersection of the American-Australian relationship and providing a lens through which Australians can view and learn about our closest ally. In that light, I would commend to you uh, our upcoming events, which you'll find on our website, uh, www.ussc.edu.au, and also our uh, regular uh, weekly newsletter, the 45th, which provides an insight into the current uh, range of political activities occurring in the US. Again, thank you for your attendance, and I look forward to seeing you again at our future events. Thank you.